tonight we are in Isaiah 38 and 39, and so this brings us to the close of the first part of our study of Isaiah. Remember I said that Isaiah is pretty much broken down into two main sections, Isaiah 1 through 39 and then 40 through 66. And so tonight we're coming to the end of that big first portion of Isaiah. And the first part of Isaiah, almost all of it from chapter 1 to 39, has the nation of Assyria as its focus. And so Assyria is the the primary threat to the people of Israel and Judah in the first part of Isaiah. Then in we see kind of a transition here in chapter 36 to 39. Chapter 36 to 39 kind of serves as a bridge between the first half and the second half. And these chapters are unique from in Isaiah in that They're not really prophecies per se. They don't take the same form, the poetic, prophetic form as much of the rest of Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah 36 to 39 is pretty much just right out of the book of Kings. It it reads very much like historical narrative and much of it is almost verbatim like you would find in 2 Kings. And the point of this historical section is really to serve as a bridge from... And uses Hezekiah's time as king to serve as that bridge from the time when Assyria was the primary threat to now the the rest of Isaiah is more focused on Babylon, uh, which is looking more off to the future, maybe about a century or so off into the future from Isaiah's time. And that's, that's one of the reasons that commentators have suggested why chapter 36 and 37 are in different chronological order than 38 and 39. And so you would expect to find, if we were to follow Hezekiah's life, that it would be in chronological order in Isaiah 36 to 39. But it's not. It's actually reversed. And so some of the events that we read about last time in 36 and 37 actually happened later in Hezekiah's life What we're reading about tonight in 38 and 39 happens earlier, but Isaiah reverses them more for literary reasons and theological reasons, because the first part is more focused on Assyria, and the second part is more focused on Babylon. And as we'll see tonight, chapter 39 ends with Babylon, which kind of gives us that that open window to the next major theme of the rest of the book of Isaiah. So tonight we're looking at chapters 38 and 39, which have to do with King Hezekiah and really two portraits of King Hezekiah. The first portrait in chapter 38 is a portrait of Hezekiah in sickness and in distress and really in humility crying out before the Lord for mercy. And then chapter 39 presents a much different portrait of Hezekiah, one that is more foolish, more prideful, and begins to set up the judgments that will fall on the nation of Judah with the people of Babylon. And so we're going to look at these two portraits tonight, chapter 38 and 39. In chapter 38, we're going to see Isaiah talking about Hezekiah's illness and his recovery. So chapter 38 is Hezekiah's illness and his recovery. 
First of all, in verse 1, Isaiah announces Hezekiah's impending death. Hezekiah's impending death. And so we see in verse 1, in those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order, because you are going to die. You will not recover. How would you like to get that news? You're sick, and a prophet of God comes to visit you, and you think, this is a man of the Lord. I know that God often works through men of the Lord, and I know about the stories of Elijah and Elisha. And here's the man of God coming, and perhaps he's going to pray. He's going to intercede for the Lord on my behalf, and I'm going to get better from this sickness. But if that was in his mind, that's not what happened. Because Isaiah actually presents the opposite message. He says to Hezekiah, you're not going to get well. You're going to die. This sickness that you have right now is unto death. And, and so it's a, it's a foreboding message. And so what's Hezekiah's response? What would our response be? Well, in our day, our modern technological medical response might be, well, I'm going to go find as many doctors as I can and see if I can beat this thing. But Hezekiah approaches it a more spiritual way. He approaches it a better theological way, and he goes to the Lord. The, the Lord spoke to him through Isaiah, saying, this is unto death. Hezekiah now is going to go before the Lord and pray and ask the Lord for mercy. And so Hezekiah prays to the Lord. In verse 2, it says, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. And this is just a, it's a, the language here is that of humility, of uh, turning his face away, of almost in a sense of shame or in a sense of humility, of calling out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prays, remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So this is a heartfelt pouring out his heart before God prayer, isn't it? And we can see the emotion as he's crying out to God. He's in full humility here. He, he's in full dependence on the Lord, crying out to him for mercy. And he calls before the Lord in light of his own righteousness. And the way he... Now, we might look at this language and say, is, is Hezekiah being too full of himself here? Is he, does he have a higher estimation of himself than he really should have? But I don't think that's the way the biblical writers would, would want us to read it. He's certainly not claiming any kind of perfection by any sort. He is not claiming to be better than the ancestors who walk with the Lord, such as Abraham or even David. In fact, as you read through Kings and Chronicles, pretty much the standard of any king of Judah is does he walk as David walked before the Lord? And so essentially Hezekiah is claiming that I have done to the best of my ability with all of my heart to obey your law and to walk before the Lord. And from what we read in the scriptures, in the historical books of Kings, we see that Hezekiah did in fact do that. He was a righteous king. He, he sought to make reforms. He sought to drive out the false idols. He sought to tear down false altars and these Asherah poles 
these sacred sites that were dedicated to false gods throughout the land of Judah. And so Hezekiah made a number of reforms. And so this really fits with what we read about his life, not claiming any sort of perfection, but, but claiming a devotion to the Lord. And he says, Lord, please, if it be your will, heal me. I've sought to live for you. I've sought to do your will, Lord, please. And so he cries out to the Lord in humility. And so then Isaiah comes back with a message from the Lord to Hezekiah, and he replies, The word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and tell Hezekiah, This is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says. Notice the reference to David. Because, as I mentioned a moment ago, all of the kings of Judah, David was their benchmark. And now David was by no means perfect either, was he? I mean, we can read about the sin of Bathsheba, other errors that David made in his own pride. But on the whole, David was a man after God's own heart. He sought to live for God and do what was right. And so Hezekiah sought to follow that example and follow the word of the Lord. And so this is the God of David, the God who made a covenant with David. Remember that covenant in 2 Samuel 7? God came to David and said, I'm going to build you a house, meaning a dynasty. And you're not going to lose the throne from your family like I'm going to take it away from Saul. So God made a commitment to David, a covenant with him. And so God says through Isaiah, I've heard your prayer and I've seen your tears and I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. And that, that very closely matches what we were looking at last time, doesn't it? In, when in that section of Isaiah 36 and 37, it talks about the threat of Sennacherib and Assyria around the walls of Jerusalem. So here God promises through Isaiah, not only am I going to deliver you physically from this illness, but I know the impending threat that is around my city, Jerusalem. I will deliver you from them as well. This is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he has promised. I will make the shadow cast by the sun go back the ten steps it has gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. So the sunlight went back the ten steps it had gone down. Essentially, this was a, a part in the city of Jerusalem that they used for telling time. It was, kind of, in a way, kind of like a sundial. And they could tell at what point of the day it was in the march of the sun across the sky by where the shadow fell on these steps. And God is saying, here's a sign to you. And this is, this is not a natural sign. This is a supernatural sign, isn't it? I mean, as you're watching the shadow move across these steps, it only goes one direction, right, through the day. But it's clearly evident that the Lord gives this sign, this wondrous sign to Hezekiah because he sees it go the other direction. And it moves backward as a cosmic sign of the Lord's promise that he's going to fulfill this to Hezekiah. So he gets an extra 15 years. Now, just a little bit of reflection on that in thinking of it from a New Testament perspective and from where we are today in this new covenant age. Should we necessarily expect this kind of same response that Hezekiah got if we find ourselves in a similar situation. So we, let's say we have an illness 
And maybe not a doc, maybe not in a prophet, but maybe a doctor tells us this sickness is unto death. This is a terminal illness. And we cry out to the Lord. What should be our what should be our expectation from the Lord? Well, I mean, let's, it's a complex question, isn't it? What are what are some of the relevant things that that we need to think about in trying to answer that question from our now new covenant perspective? What's one thing that Hezekiah? What are some things that are different about Hezekiah's situation and our situation? If we were to find out that we had a terminal illness, what what are the things that are different? Well, Hezekiah was a leader of God's people. Okay, so he is he's a king. He's the anointed one, right? He's an, an anointed king of God's covenant people, his national Israelite covenant people. So clearly, even amongst Israel, Hezekiah was a unique figure, wasn't he? In There may have been, who knows how many other people in Judah at that same time that had a terminal illness that the Bible doesn't tell us anything about. But Hezekiah was the Lord's anointed one. So he was in a unique position. What what else is different about Hezekiah's situation and ours? Yeah. Okay. So so he's got a clearer picture of the afterlife, or, or we do. We have a clearer picture of the afterlife because of the work of Christ and the promises of eternal life through the gospel. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we do have more revelation now in, in terms of the big picture of creation, new creation and eternal life and all that God is doing in Christ. So yeah, we do have a, a, a broader view than Hezekiah did. One thing that's different I I was thinking of is that Hezekiah had a specific called out man of God that gave him direct revelation from God, specific revelation from God to his unique specific situation. So he had a, a man of God who was bringing the word of God and first of all revealed to him, this is what's going on with your sickness from a divine perspective, right? So if you were to just get a medical diagnosis of terminal illness from a doctor, that's a medical perspective. Hezekiah is getting a God perspective, isn't he? A theological perspective. So he's got a prophet who is bringing a word from the Lord and an infallible word from the Lord, right? He also, after the prayer receives another infallible word from the Lord, from Isaiah, again, specifically directed to his situation. Now, we have, we have revelation from God, don't we? We have, the, we have the full, complete scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. The scriptures teach us much about prayer, about how we should call out to God in the midst of illness and trial and difficult situations. But one thing that we don't have that Hezekiah had is we don't have a specific direct to our personal situation word from God about that particular circumstance. 
Hezekiah had that. We don't have that, do we? And that brings up the whole issue of the continuation of prophecy, doesn't it? Of do we have prophecy today like the Old Testament had prophecy, or even like they had prophecy in the days of the apostles? Say Paul or Peter, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah. I would say from a biblical as well as a theological perspective that prophets in the sense of an Isaiah or even an apostle like Peter or Paul, that they are not currently operational in this church age in which we live. Ephesians 2.20 says that through apostles and prophets, God laid the foundation for the church. And so the apostles and prophets were the ones through whom God gave new revelation. He laid that foundation. We don't continue to have a foundation being laid. We're now building on top of the foundation that was laid in the prophets and the apostles. So I would argue that we don't have prophets operating in the same way in which Isaiah was. Or even like in the apostolic days that prophecy was operating. So we have fuller scripture that gives us bigger picture revelation, but we don't have a specific man of God called to live, to deliver the word of God to us in our unique personal situation. So there are differences, but is God still the same God? God's still the same God. Is God fully capable of healing a terminal illness just as he healed Hezekiah's terminal illness? Absolutely. He is just as capable of that today as he was in Hezekiah's day. Is he, is he willing to do that today as he was then? Absolutely. I think he's available, able, willing. The one thing that is different is we don't have the specific promise from God for our unique specific situation that Hezekiah had. In order to have that, we would have to have new revelation from God. We would have to have our own unique prophet bringing the word of the Lord. And so the situation is different. Should we respond the same way that Hezekiah did? I would say yes. He went to the Lord and prayed. Now, when he prayed, did he know he was going to be healed? He didn't. He didn't know until the word of the Lord came that he was going to be healed. He's just crying out in mercy, isn't he? Or seeking mercy, crying out in humility for God to heal him. And so there are some things that are same. It's the same God. We should respond the same way in faith and in prayer and humility, but we're not necessarily guaranteed the same response that Hezekiah received because of the differences in our covenant context as well as our unique individual life context. So uh, just some, some, some things to think about from bridging the Old Testament to New Testament in terms of application. So Isaiah brings this word to Hezekiah that he's going to live and God's going to deliver him. Then we see in verses 9 through 20, a psalm or a, a hymn of thanksgiving from Hezekiah. And in this psalm, first of all, much like a psalm of lament, Hezekiah talks about his illness. He talks about the anguish that he was in, verses 9 through 15. And so a writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after his illness and recovery. I said, in the prime of my life, must I go through the gates of death and be robbed of the rest of my years? So he's crying out. This is a lament. Why in the prime of life should I have to go through death? 
I said, I will not again see the Lord himself in the land of the living. No longer will I look on my fellow man or be with those who now dwell in this world. And this kind of touches on what you were saying, John, about just the difference in perspective on the amount of revelation that the people of God knew about the afterlife. I think there is some revelation that points to eternal life and the afterlife in the Old Testament, but it's certainly not as clear and right there as it is in the gospel in the New Testament. And so he's mourning the fact that, that he will no longer be able to enjoy this world and his fellow man in death. Like a shepherd's tent, my house has been pulled down and taken from me. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life, and he has cut me off from the loom. Day and night, you made an end of me. I waited patiently till dawn, but like a lion, he broke all my bones. Day and night, you made an end of me. So it's poetic. It's very psalm-like, isn't it? Following in the pattern of some of the psalms of lament. I cried like a swift or thrush. I moaned like a mourning dove. My eyes grew weak as I looked to the heavens. I am being threatened. Lord, come to my aid. So there's his prayer. But what can I say? He has spoken to me and he himself has done this. I will walk humbly all my years because of this anguish of my soul. A couple of things in verse 15. One is he acknowledges the sovereignty of the Lord, doesn't he? He acknowledges that this sickness ultimately has to come from the Lord because the Lord is the sovereign of all the earth. And he also has the right perspective in the sense that this is teaching me humility in the way to respond to my God. But then he reflects in the same psalm, in the same hymn of thanksgiving and lament, he reflects on the lessons that he's learned. Lord, by such things people live, and my spirit finds life in them too. You restored me to health and let me live. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. In your love, you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. We need that kind of perspective in the difficulties of life. Where he says, surely it was for my benefit that I suffered anguish. How many times do we have that perspective when we're going through trials? That's a difficult perspective to have, isn't it? It's the kind of perspective that James has when he says, count it all joy when you fall into trials. And so we need that kind of perspective of in the difficult times of life, Lord, I know you're teaching me something. It's for my ultimate benefit that I go through these things. And he also talks about the Lord's forgiveness, doesn't he? That, Lord, you've, you've forgiven my sins. You've restored me. For the grave cannot praise you. Death cannot sing your praise. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. Again, limited perspective of eternal life. We know from from Revelation, from the New Testament, we'll be praising the Lord for all of eternity. But from his less, a point of less revelation, he is seeing that in order to continue on praising God and worshiping him, he needs extension of life to do that. The living, the living, they praise you as I am doing today. Parents tell their children about your faithfulness. The Lord will save me, and we will sing with stringed instruments all the days of our lives in the temple of the Lord. So his focus on the worship of the Lord is when he is alive physically 
and it is associated with the temple in Jerusalem where he lives. We know from a New Testament perspective that we will be worshiping God for all of eternity in a new Jerusalem, won't we? In a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem that has come down from God and we'll be worshiping forever and ever in, in glory. But he is thankful to God for the deliverance that he has received. He is acknowledging his lament, but then he is turning and giving thanks for responding to his prayer. And he does it in a psalm, poetic-like way. And then we see his recovery described in 21 and 22. Isaiah had said, prepare a poultice of figs and apply it to the boil, and he will recover. Hezekiah had asked, what will be the sign that I will go up to the temple of the Lord? Of course, we've already seen what sign that would be. And he gives him this cosmic sign of the Lord drawing back the shadow of the sun. Ten steps. But also interesting, too, here is the application of a physical remedy that results in a supernatural recovery. And that really, that's not unusual from a biblical theology, a scriptural perspective, is it? I mean, we even see Jesus do that, don't we? I mean, we see Jesus spit on the ground, right? And take some clay and put it on the man's eyes, and he goes and recovers. And so the Isaiah is operating very much in the same way here, but it is clearly from the Lord, isn't it, that this healing comes. So that's chapter 38. 38 is a, an illness from God and Hezekiah's humility and, and heartfelt prayer to God in the midst of that illness and the healing and the recovery that he receives. And he's thankful to that, to the Lord. Chapter 39 is a very much different picture of Hezekiah. But in Isaiah, it serves the purpose of moving us now into focus on the Babylonians and the threat that they will bring to the people of Judah. And so we see a delegation, a group of Babylonian envoys come and visit Hezekiah in Jerusalem. And Merodach Baladan, he sends these envoys to Hezekiah in Jerusalem. And so here is his, his initiative. He sends these messengers to Hezekiah. At that time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and recovery. So we see the connection between chapter 38 and 39. So he sends these messengers along with a letter and a gift. Here's the problem. Hezekiah responds foolishly. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses. The silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Why would he show them all this? Showing off, maybe, a little bit. Um, you've had people over your house, right? I mean, we like to do this. Say, come look at this new room that I built, right? Come look, at, come look at the new car that I just bought. Come look at this renovation that we just did. So there's a there's natural sense in which we like to do that. We like to show the products of our labors. But here's the problem. It seems that he was doing it from a point of pride 
from a point of self-sufficiency, and, and he's he basically showing off, right? But the problem is, is that this, he didn't create all this. He didn't earn all this. Where did all these treasures come from? These are from the grace of the Lord to his people. And so he's, in a prideful way, showing off all of this wealth and all of the strength and the armory and all of this. So that's prideful. But the other problem, too, is it's, it's foolish in the sense that he's revealing all the wealth and all the weaknesses of his nation to a foreign power. And you remember what's been one of the overriding themes throughout much of chapter 1 through 39? Is where are you going to put your trust? Are you going to put your trust in God? Or are you going to put your trust in alliances? In these treaties that you have with other nations? Are you going to depend on human strength? Human loyalty? Or are you going to depend on God? And in this foolish response, there's a little bit of pride, but there's also a little bit of naivete, if you will, of foolishly trusting these envoys and trusting the power of Babylon that they're on friendly terms. When we know from what's going to unfold that Babylon is going to use this to Judah's disadvantage in the future. And so Isaiah calls him out on that. This is the last part of the passage. Isaiah speaks with Hezekiah. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did those men say? And where did they come from? Now, by the way, I don't think Isaiah is clueless about what happened here. I think he has already received instruction from the Lord. That's why he's come to Hezekiah. But he's seeking to elicit out of him his own failures, what he has done. What do those men say? Where do they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace And all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Isaiah says, you are foolish. All this treasure that you just showed is going to be hauled off in carts on the way back to Babylon. And your own people, your own descendants, your own sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters, they're going to die at the hands of the Babylonians. And they're going to become his servants. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought there will be peace and insecurity in my lifetime. Now, is that being selfish when he says, hey, at least it's not going to happen when I'm alive. You know, be later on. Or... Another way of looking at it is that he's, he's genuinely thankful that the Lord is being merciful to him during his days and allowing him to finish out his life in peace. So there, I think maybe a, 
a more nobler or a more generous way of reading it would be that, that, that he's genuinely thankful to the Lord that he is allowing him to finish out his days in peace. He recognizes his mistake. He recognizes his foolishness. And he says, this, this is the word of the Lord is good. He's right in all that he does. I was foolish. I was wrong. Thank you, Lord, for allowing me to live out in peace. So we see the disaster that's on the horizon, right? Just this little window of what's going to be coming down the road. That's where Isaiah opens up into now from beginning in chapter 40 through 66 is the the Babylonian threat. So we see two portraits here, one of humility and crying out to God for mercy. But we also see one of pride and foolishness that ends with a very different kind of response from the Lord. Not of healing, but of judgment. And so there's clearly lessons to learn here. Where is our strength? Our strength is not in our own treasures. It's not in our own power. Our strength is in God. We shouldn't be flaunting and, and making a big deal of what we have accomplished or what we have in front of other people, seeking to receive praise from men. We should seek praise from God, right? In times of difficulty, in times of distress, where do we turn? We should turn to the Lord. He is the one who delivers. He is the one who rescues. And even in the midst of those trials and illnesses and difficulties, there are lessons to be learned, aren't there? Hezekiah says, Lord, surely it's been good for me to have gone through this anguish. So he learned lessons of faith from it. 